to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'm, I just have two verses, right? And I only have two points. You're getting out of here early. Lord willing. We'll see if the Lord's willing on that. We'll see. Yeah, there it is. Wait for it. Well, I, I, as coming to this passage, even last, last week, I, I looked at, you know, last week we looked at verses 1 through 4, and I had debated on adding verses 5 and 6 to that. A lot of of commentaries do that. Some leave these verses alone and, and some uh, add it to the passages that follow the verses that follow. And it just seems like there's these two verses that we're not sure what to do with. So I decided, well, let's just let them stand alone. I found myself this week just pondering deeply upon uh, verse 4, the reality of verse 4 of chapter 11. Uh, there are those who profess Jesus, yet it's not the Jesus of the Bible. There are those who pro profess a spirit that is not, right, the spirit that is of Scripture. There are those who are, who are proclaiming a gospel that's not the gospel. And Paul ends that verse by saying to these Corinthians, you bear this beautifully. And I found myself just pondering, right, how, how is it that we bear these things beautifully? Um. How is it that the church is putting up with some of these things? You know, how, do, how does that come about? I found myself just thinking along those lines. And as I was thinking on that, I just kind of thought, well, this is kind of Paul's response to what he just wrote, isn't it? These following verses. How does Paul approach this idea that they are bearing with this truth beautifully? That led me to the idea of, of Paul's loyalty. Um, Paul is being criticized, he's been criticized, he's going to address one of his criticisms in these two verses that, that the church is charging him with, about not having the, the right speaking skills, right? And what does Paul do with that? You know, how does Paul respond to that? How does Paul, you know, get into that? Now, he has a unique ministry. We are not called to be apostles, we are not called to, uh, to you know, to do, to do what he's doing. It's very unique in the time of the church and so I always approach this and say, well, what does the Lord have for us? What do we glean from the way Paul approaches this? And I came to this word loyalty. He's simply loyal. And loyalty means an, uns an unswavering, right? Unswavering in our allegiance. And, that, and of course, that could be seen in, as someone being loyal to their country or their sovereign or to uh, uh, a spouse, right? We're being loyal to our spouse. And those things definitely play themselves out for sure. But the Christian is to be loyal, right, to, to the end of our lives, to Christ and his church, right, to his word. Which brings all this to light. We want to make sure we have the right Jesus, right? If we're going to give our life to this, we want to have the right Jesus. And I believe that as we search the scriptures, as we use Right, historical and gr grammatical and, and even using logic, we come to unfold the scriptures and we can be confident in, the, in knowing the Christ of the Bible. But Paul is, is dealing with a church that is, he's afraid, right, that they're, they're wandering away. And so Paul is addressing this element of, of you need to come back and you need to make the conversation about knowledge of who God is, about the knowledge of scripture and not about my ability to speak well or not, right? And that's kind of what he's going to say. We'll read it here in a moment. 
And Paul is willing, and we see in his own life that we know he's willing to go to the ends. He will give his life for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that people would know Jesus. All the disciples ultimately gave their lives that way, right? Although one was boiled and he escaped that, but... um, there are many throughout history who, who have bared this, who are completely loyal to Scripture with conviction and dealing with a conflict. The fact that we are followers of Christ puts us at conflict with the world, with the culture. Um, back in 1555, when um, Queen Mary was trying to reestablish the throne of the Catholic Church, she was referred to as Bloody Mary, and the reason was she was taking many Protestant pastors and um, taking them to the stake and burning them at the stake. And one such pastor was the name of John Philpot. And it is said of him that once the ruling came down, that he was held in captivity and she had deemed him unworthy of life, that he must be uh, extinguished. He said, I am ready. God grant me strength and a joyful resurrection. It is said of him that he went to his bedroom and he thanked God that he was counted worthy to suffer for the truth. The next day, the, the guards were usually, guys, right, par for course, were expected to carry him to the place. You can imagine most people don't want to go to the stake at which they will be burned. But he rejected their, their having to drag him and he simply walked without any fuss or fight. And it is said that he knelt and kissed the stake at which he would be burned. And he said, shall I disdain to suffer at this stake, seeing my Redeemer did not refuse to suffer a most vile death on the cross for me? After that, it is reported that he repeated the 106th, 107th, and 108th Psalm while he was chained and held to that stake. And it is said he died quietly. This is one of many throughout history as we see martyrs giving right their, their lives for Christ. And so there must be, as, as we are now, have the mantle given to us to stand for truth. Paul in this situation of this church is not one who's going to give in or give up or quit or allow the evil one to come in and lead these people astray because Paul knows if we change the standard, we move away from God's word, regardless, whether it's just to avoid trouble or it's the new thing or it's the cool, whatever, he realizes that once we move away from truth, there is no more, no more hope, um, no hope of salvation, no hope of God's activity. So this is what he says after these verses, his loyalty to Christ. We know he gives his life. We see others throughout history. And as we stand today, we don't want to be those who are hearing a Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Bible. And so Paul responds in verses 5 and 6 as he's writing this. You can imagine he he gets that out by the power of the Holy Spirit that you bear this beautifully. And then in verse 5 he says, For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. There's his reason for. Then he contrasts that with the word but. But even 
If I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. Let me offer a brief prayer. Lord, as as we open your word now, we ask that your spirit would instruct us and teach us. That we would not leave this place the same, but we would just see the simple resolve and loyalty of Paul. And that we would ask the right questions of our own life in light of your word. And so, Father, I pray you guide us now. We commit it to you. pray you get me out of the way that we would receive what you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So... Out of these verses, we talked about it last week, we have learned that the church, right, is going to be under attack. Paul has touched on these things. He's in verse, or excuse me, chapter 10, he has touched on military terms. He has basically said, guess what? Uh, you're in a war. Welcome to it, right? And your job in this war is to bring every thought captive. You're to have a ministry that the Lord commends. There's ways we need to go about this. So we would expect that kind of war in, in our culture, right? Absolutely. We stand, we are a light in a dark place. Unfortunately, as Paul is writing this, what actually is happening, the attack is coming from within the church itself. So we learn that it's not enough simply to attend church. We have to know what the pastor's saying, right? What are they saying? We also learn that these wolves, these false teachers, these eminent apostles, as Paul will refer to them, are coming into the church not with like wolves in sheep's clothing, right? They're coming that way, but they're not coming, excuse me, howling or baring their teeth. They're not coming in saying, hey, I'm a false teacher, right? I got a sign around my neck. I've got a lanyard that says I'm false. They don't have any of that. They're coming uh, in sheep's clothing. They're smiling, right? They're reciting scripture. Man, they sound good. They've got good skills, speaking skills. And they're promising something almost more than Christ himself, right? That's just so good. We have a life and, and this reality that's even better than those commands, right? So they want to change the standard. And you see this is what these false teachers are doing. Let's, let's talk about Paul's inability to speak well rather than what Paul's actually speaking. Let's change the conversation. Let's change the standard. It's exactly what uh, Satan did to Eve, right? Let's not talk about God's commands. Let's throw a whole lot of questions on that. Let's talk about what you think this fruit looks like and what this fruit is good for. And there's a situational ethic that happens. It's happening today. Same thing. And Paul knows, and I mentioned this last Sunday, he knows that we're not going to win every battle Unfortunately, as the Bible writes, we know that there are, not every soul goes to heaven. But Paul also knows, right, that we lose every battle we don't fight, right? And you have to appreciate the grit of Paul. This guy, man, he's been, he's going to list this out later in this chapter, all that he's been through. And if there's anyone who's walked this planet who says, you know what, I'm good, I've had enough whippings and stonings and shipwrecks and snake bites and all this other stuff, I'm good, right? You would think it would be him, but he does not yield. His loyalty is unswavering. He is devoted, right? We talked about this last week, to, the, to, to Christ, 
the singularity of Christ. We sing these songs, Christ alone. We see the activity of the evil one, so we know we've got to be maturing in the faith, and we must grow to realize that the enemy uses and loves this word equivocation. That's a, that's a great-sounding word, isn't it? You just throw it out there, you sound important. I think that's just a good-sounding word. And all it means is that we use the same words, but we define them differently. This is clearly what the enemy is doing. Yeah, you can preach Jesus, not the one of Scripture. Yeah, you can reference the gospel, not the one of Scripture. Yes, you can talk about the Spirit, not the one of Scripture. Let's use all the same words. Let's change their definitions. That's what's happening. So we ended last Sunday, and I stressed upon you that verse 4. Hopefully you felt that stress, and that we must come to a place to realize not everything that calls itself Christian is Christian. Not everything that says it is true to God's word is true to God's word. Because this verse simply states everything. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, right? Preaches another gospel, a different spirit. The church doesn't understand, can't discern, and accepts it beautifully. So here you realize, you know, based on the early confessions of the church, that confession would not help the church. They're using the same words, changing the, def the definitions. They're coming with a completely different message, and yet we don't have a standard set in place. That's why it's important for churches to have doctrinal statements and confessions that say, this is, this is what we mean by the word Jesus. This is what we mean by the, word, the, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. This is what we mean by the doctrine of Scripture, right? We have to identify those things. In the early church, those things would not be a help. They're just simply, right, the church is forming all of its brand new. We have to kind of, you know, give them some, some grace here and all these things. But this church has also been planted by the Apostle Paul. And he didn't hold back anything. He tells us, I didn't hold back anything from you. So we learn from this that, you know, churches can look perfectly orthodox. They, they walk the walk, and it sounds like they talk the talk. But they can at the same time be presenting a different Christ. So the question for us is, you know, we don't want to be led astray. We don't want to be known as those who stand before Christ and Him say, I never knew you. We don't want to be those uh, who stand before Him and not have a ministry that's commended by Him. We don't want to be those who are sucked into a wrong gospel. We want to be those who are true to Him, full of grace and mercy, right? Loving as He loved, but never compromising the truth. Paul has said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, that every single one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I believe it is my responsibility to get you ready. That you would stand there with confidence in who Christ is and what he has done. That your faith would not be looking upon your life or your works or our situations, but your eyes would be fixed solely upon Christ as you run this race, that you would stand there that day with everything left out on the playing field, completely exhausted, Lord, I wore out the gospel, and him say, well done, good and faithful servant. We want to be those who are loyal. So we want to make sure that we know how, right? What are some indications that we can know? So I was chewing on this. That means I was thinking about this passage, right? If we're in Oklahoma, they would all have understood that. 
I, I thought about the exchange that when Jesus tells his disciples, or rather he asks that question, who do you say that I am? That's the, the most pivotal question. And they give him some answers, and then he asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the son of the living God, right? You, you are it. And Jesus responds and says, you know, blessed are you, right? Simon. This is revealed my Father in heaven. And Jesus goes in. At that moment, he goes in and explains that he is going to be given over, that he's going to suffer, that he's going to die. And the same Simon, right, Peter, who just now just said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, turns around and says, oh, time out. Right? That's not in the Greek. But he says, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus gives us, right, an indicator. Our hearts, where they're beating. He says, get behind me, Satan. That's, that's brutal, right? You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests. The man's. How can we know that we are not being deceived and being led away by a false Jesus, well, are your interests God's interests? Or are they man's? I mean, that takes us right, right back to the garden. Is it God's commands, or is it what I think it should be? So Jesus unfolds this. And Jesus from there, from that moment, goes, okay, here's what you do. You pick up your cross, you come follow me. See, our active obedience demonstrates, right, our love for Christ, true to his words. We're continually growing. We grow in our sanctification. We can see these things in our lives. Are you growing in a love for God's word and your holiness and for Jesus' commands? Are these things, are you growing in your love for the church? I desire on Sunday. Are these things happening? Then you have the interests of God, right, not the interests of man. That's contrary to the world. We also realize that when we don't deal rightly with sin, think about that for a moment. When Peter hears those words, you're thinking the interests of man and not God. And Jesus had just told him he's going to Calvary. Right? He's going to die for us. This is the interest of God. And today we will not preach a Christ who's gone to Calvary to die for your sins. We will not mention the word in many pulpits, sin and repentance, when we realize that this is God's interest. Paul seems to have understood that in Acts 17, right? God has commanded every man everywhere to repent. So you can tell, right, quite quickly from a pastor if he'll actually call sin, sin, and call us to repentance. There's indicators that Scripture gives us, and even it's just in this this exchange, we see what, what matters most to God. It should start to matter most to us. So why do people put up with this, right? Why do they bear with this? Well, we know from Scripture there are many out there who just have itching ears. We want to hear what we want to hear. There are many who just go, you know, it's just easier than dealing with with calling everything sin, let's make this whole thing gray, right? And then we can kind of love the community. We can be accepted by the community. Let's compromise. There's that group. 
There are those, I believe, who are genuinely misled. They just don't know. They've come to Christ. Maybe, honestly, they've come and believed, but yet they're a part of a, of a congregation that they're teaching this, and they think this is what it is, and we pray the Lord would bring them out and, and bring them to a church that will open his word and teach them. But I also think there's such a low bar for pastors today that we just don't expect much from them. I think if people were to say, hey, you're not, you're not showing us Jesus, you're not preaching the Bible, there should be some pastors who get bothered by that. But this is where we're at. So I know this is a lengthy the intro to this message, but you begin to see Paul's loyalty unfold in these two, two verses. Just as Jesus was doing these things, you begin to see Paul. What does Paul do to these who are bearing and putting up with a false Jesus? Well, this is my first one. He's going to reject this cultural influence. He's going to be challenged because he doesn't speak right. He's not going to have it. He says, for I consider myself, uh, in verse, uh, verse 5 here, I consider myself in the, not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. Okay, here's the charge. Paul, you just don't speak right. You don't look right, you walk funny, and you got this funny smell, right? I don't know what else they're, they're charging him with. But Paul's not going to have any of this. And he told us in verse 1, bear with me, right, as I lower myself to this foolishness. Remember that? But he's lowering himself to have a voice, but he's not going to become one of them. He's not going to operate in this, this milieu, right? He's not going to come and say, let's utilize this cultural component to win them back. Very popular today. He's not going to become one of them. See, the culture desperately wants, and I think you would agree with this, is, is one, that we don't call their lifestyle that is sin, don't call it sin for one, and two, embrace and accept them, right? They're open-minded and accept everyone but you because you're a Christian, and you know to accept them and to let them live in their sin just leads them to hell, right? So you're stuck in a rock and a hard place if you're not sure how to navigate that. So Paul is saying, look, this is his response to you putting up with it beautifully. I'm not going to reduce myself down to this, this debate on my ability to speak well or not. I'm going to come with you, and it definitely says in the next verse, with knowledge, I've come to you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is thinking differently. Here's the cultural thing, pastor. Here's the cool thing. You've got to have smoke and mirrors, and you've got to have the cool haircuts, and you've got to have the skinny jeans. I mean, that's what's popular. You've got to have that look. I've said this before when I was in Denver. It was part of a church growth. The church was part of a church growth movement, church planning movement. They'd have this, uh, this uh, conference every year that we were, had to go to, and I, I remember thinking, here's all these church planners. It's really cool, but they all look the same. You could tell you're a church planner, aren't you, right? They had designer jeans. Really cool shirts, spiked hair, right? And that was just, you're, you're, you're a church planner, aren't you? You know, I just never thought it was kind of comical. I didn't judge their hearts. You know, I don't want to do that. I just said there's clearly an image. It's important. But Paul is not coming this way. He's not going to lower himself to this cultural standard, right? We, we, we Greeks pride ourselves on, on speaking a certain way. Paul doesn't have it. So let's cast Paul out, and Paul knows what. If you cast me out, it's not about me because you're casting out the Jesus in whom I've planted this church upon. 
He's come to him in the first letter and said, it is Christ and him crucified. I didn't come with you with great speech. I didn't come with you with all those, those accolades and all these other things. I came to you with the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ so you would know that your life, this church, is built upon a rock. Don't deviate from it. Now he expects, right, as he addresses these eminent uh, apostles, he expects that the, the Corinthians should have evaluated them already. You should have assessed what they were saying over against what I have proclaimed. You should have known. I mean, that's the hint, these eminent apostles. I mean, they have to feel bad reading that going, wow, our, our church planner just called these guys that we think are super cool these eminent apostles. As Paul uses the word consider, right? This is where I get the word thinking. He's thinking differently. The word means a detailed or logical manner. And I think for us, the Christian must, you must engage your mind. I was at a chapel service one time and at Stone Ridge a few years back, and one of the chapel leaders was getting to lead the songs and encouraged everyone to turn their minds off. And then after that, I, was, I had to go up and speak, and I was tempted to go, and I, I wove it into my talk that you should never turn your mind off. You should be thinking. Now, the Bible, right, what Paul is doing is Paul is dealing with the conflict. And the Bible assumes that if you have professed Christ today, definitely with all the military terms and everything that he's talked and walked us through, uh, the Bible just simply writes that you're in conflict. Uh, Jesus says in John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world... Because of this, the world hates you. Right? So Paul knows there, there's conflict. He has no issue with conflict. He's telling them, I'm coming and I'm going to deal rightly with these guys who are false. And for us, we realize as Jesus makes that statement, he's talking to his disciples, but every soul that has been redeemed and adopted out of the family of Satan to the, to the family of Christ, right? You are in conflict. That's the reality of it. So we must engage our minds and think different about the world because it has countless influences. The world desperately wants you to just endorse and embrace what they say is normal. It's all around us. Why all the sports teams had to put on jerseys that had the pride flag. Show solidarity. You've got to bow the knee. You have to bow the knee. It's all over. And what are they trying to do? They are trying to set... What is normal? This is what is normal. And the Christian says, no, that's sin. Our government is trying to set what is normal for marriage. And we say, there's only one who can say what marriage is, the one who designed it. That's what you're up against. There are those who say, you have to accept me because I'm non-binary, I'm transgender, I'm homosexual. And we say, brother, that's sin and you're confused. Actually, we wouldn't say brother. We would say friend there, right? But Because they're lost. But what do they want desperately? You will not call what I'm doing sin, and you will endorse what I'm doing. You and I, friends, brothers, sisters, we are in conflict. So what has the Bible given us? If you turn to Ephesians, really quick, read these passages. Probably very familiar to you. Ephesians chapter 6, a few pages over. 
Let's talk about the armor of God. Paul will write these words. Church in Ephesus, he says, beginning in verse 10, chapter 6, Ephesians, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He's scheming, isn't he? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Here you go. Here's your armor. Stand firm. Put the belt of truth on, objective truth of God's word, the breastplate, right, of righteousness, of the redemption of Christ, our shoes, right, our feet are ready with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the shield of faith that will uh, protect us from all the onslaught, all the deception, all the schemes. So we trust the Lord, we trust his word. You're covered with the helmet of salvation. And most importantly, I think, all of them are important, Man, grab your hold of the sword of the Spirit. See, all these stand. Armor itself is conflict. All of the elements of the armor deal with conflict. When Paul writes to Timothy about the Word of God, that all Scripture is inspired of God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, it's dealing with conflict. You and I must conflict with the culture. The culture desperately wants you to embrace its ways, its thinking, to to normalize in your own living room what the world is saying should be normal. So for us, as we grow in Christ, as we grow in his word, we must realize the armor does us no good if we don't put it to use. Paul simply says, I am not inferior. Now these Greeks may have a point, right? He doesn't speak as well, but he's not inferior. You, this morning, may feel inferior in some other, way, some other area. But I think the Lord wants us, when we know nothing else to do, we see it multiple times in the armor of God, is to stand. Stand firm. See, you and I need to consider that we are to be different than the world. Paul is not compromising. He's willing to basically to become, in a certain sense, one without the law to win those Gentiles, but he is not compromising anything of God's truth. And he realizes, as I said again, that every battle, every, every moment we say, I'm not going to step where I feel inferior it's a battle we lose because we don't engage. That's the challenge. 
It weaves its way, the culture, its influence into our thinking, social media. It's normal, it's normal, it's normal. And the Christian stands and says, no, that's not. Because at some point, if we're going to, to, to say that's, you know, that's true and God's word is not, then we have to take the belt off, don't we? You've got to cast the, the belt of truth down. And do you realize that when you cast that down, you must take the breastplate off of righteousness because we can't know that without it. And see, if you, if you cast truth off, well, then you have to take your shoes. You've got to kick them aside. That No longer does the gospel do you any benefit or anybody else. Do you see how that works? And the world is espousing critical theory, critical race theory. We must understand them, reject them. Not because, well, we just reject them for the sake of it. No, we'll, let's dig into them. Let's espouse them for what they are, sin and segregation. So here's what Paul is doing. Paul is not allowing the cultural, he's not allowing the conversation to be about his speaking skills. So this leads to my second point. And I know I should pick the pace up here. Our loyalty is demonstrated when we espouse spiritual truth. This is what he does. Right? But even if I'm unskilled in speech, I'll give you that one. Right? And it doesn't mean Paul couldn't speak. He planted this church. He's a powerful preacher. He's just not the way they want him to be. It's all the issues the Pharisees had with Jesus, right? We like him, but he doesn't fit in our scheme. It's the same argument, right? So he's coming and saying, but even if I'm unskilled, according to what you think, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. First step of a Christian a soldier, excuse me, right? Have your, have your hand around the word of God. Understand it, right? Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 4. Listen to how Jesus defends, right, the evil one. Or not defends him, I said that incorrectly, but, but uh, deals with him. We can say it like that. The temptation of Jesus. I read 1 through 11, Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry, right? There's a tactic there. He waits till wait you're exhausted and hungry, then he comes. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand at the, on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. Behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Here's the antidote, right? Cultural influence. 
We must do what Jesus did. It is written. So Paul, engaging this, he acknowledges, right, that he is not the greatest speaker in that sense and what they want. And we may have to have those elements and saying, okay, I'm not, not the most eloquent of, of people, but I have the truth. I have the knowledge. He knows that they're accusers. He's written this in chapter 10, verse 10, that they have said of him that his, his letters are weighty and strong, right? They know that about him. But, contrast, his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. So let's talk about that. Let's not talk about the weightiness of his knowledge. So Paul is not having any of this, right? Do you hear the serpents hissing? Let's not talk about the weight of Scripture. Let's not talk about what he planted this church on. Let's not talk about Christ and him crucified. Let's talk about his speaking skills. And if I can get you to, to just kind of uh, worry about those things, maybe you'll compromise. The conversation, Paul is not having it, right? He is bringing the conversation back. I did not come with you. I'm not inferior to this. I'm not going to allow the cultural influence to come in. I came with knowledge. I mean, isn't it amazing that these Corinthians, they pride themselves on these speaking skills, but what good do speaking skills do for you if they're leading you away from Christ? And yet we see this, unfortunately, over and over again. See, I see in this, when Paul says, I've brought knowledge, the word means God's redemptive revelation in Christ Jesus. He's simply saying what Jesus has already done. It is written, Paul is saying, I'm coming back. Here's what it says. This is the knowledge. I did not come purposely in these ways, right? Because he's wise enough to understand these Greeks, but he has come with the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he's not deviating from it. He's now saying, we're not going to discuss my speaking skills. We are again going to discuss the commands of God. He is rejecting the cultural influence. He is espousing Scripture. This is what he's doing. So to this group of people who are bearing it, bearing this and, and proclaiming some type of Jesus, it's not Jesus, and all these things are going on, you have Paul who shows up and says, yeah, I might not be culturally approved. I'm not going to have the skinny jeans on, the spiked hair and the, and the flash pots and the smoke and mirrors. I'm not going to do this. And also, I'm not going to let the cultural influence what this whole thing is about. I am, however, going to come with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will espouse the scriptures. I have brought to you knowledge. Paul understands that these Corinthians need to know Christ. They need the Bible. So I think you would agree that Paul also understands that we, we need to know Christ. We need the Bible. See, we are those people who love to sing these hymns, right? Standing on the promises of Christ the Lord, bound to him eternally by love's strong cord, overcoming daily, with the Spirit's sword, standing on those promises. It sounds like the hymn writer says we need to know the Bible, doesn't it? We need to know something about this. Paul is resetting the terms of the conversation. 
He will not let the evil one, right, come, as he said, I'm afraid, in verse 3, that the, the serpent is, is hissing in your ears. I'm, I'm going to come, and I'm going to bring the conversation back to that question, who do you say Christ is? I'm going to bring you back to this moment where you, too, need to follow after Jesus. You, too, need to pick up this cross. I'm going to tell you this is where it's at. It's going to espouse truth. He says, in every way, I made this evidence to you in all things. Remember, Paul is in his sphere. The Corinthians are a part of it. He didn't withhold anything of the gospel. See, I think today the struggle, we come to this, right? It seems so simple to me. It just really does seem very simple to me. I would imagine there's, there's times where I think many of you go home and go, well, those are really simple points. And I think these points are very simple. Yeah, reject the cultural influence, espouse truth. That sounds like day one Christianity. And yet it is the one thing that we are not doing. It is the one thing that is very subtle in our own lives, in our own conversations, in our own walk with the Lord, where we, we imbibe some of the culture and we begin to think differently and we're not bringing the truths of God's word to what that means. We don't watch, I don't know, maybe you do this, I drive my sons nuts, they, they would always say, knock it off, Dad, but I would, I would espouse, we'd watch a, a commercial or a TV show, I'd be like, do you see the worldview presented? Do you see what they think about marriage? Do you see what they think about men? Do you see this? We get it, Dad, we get it. I cannot not turn that off. I look at this all the time and go, and that's what they're espousing. Do you see what they're saying? They want you to embrace this. They want you to love these characters because well, I love these characters, but these characters love something contrary to Christ. Well, maybe we can compromise a little bit there. See, we don't get today Paul's. We don't get these John Philpots. We don't get these men and women who say, I have, I have been found worthy to suffer for him. We don't get those today if we keep compromising. Paul will have none of it. He demands that they come back and mature in Christ. I have brought to you knowledge. See, I think sometimes we get stuck. We, we've believed on the Lord, and we look forward to his return. And in between, we just kind of go to church on most Sundays. But God is is asking you, Jesus assumes you're in a battle. Are you in it? The Bible has given you, you weapons and armor for it. It doesn't mean we go and we're putting up our dukes and beating people. It doesn't mean that at all, right? We're just using this as an illustration to understand that. We are to speak truth, God's truth. So we don't have to take, right? Sometimes I think we, we think God's truth is this cake, but you know, the cake doesn't taste that good. So, but if I put my frosting on it, right, and then we can get this thing in some glass of milk, we'll get it down. And I think we just need to present God's cake. I mean, that's what Paul's doing. I'm not going to change my speaking style. I'm not going to cave to the culture. I'm going to give you the truth of Christ. See, our loyalty is it's demonstrated here. Unswear. It doesn't mean we're perfect. But it means we're willing to say, Lord, I'm going to let the culture influence me. I'm going to let your word influence me. Because we don't help any of those in our sphere of influence if we're, if we're imbibing the culture. We need to be those who, 
who say like John Philpott, shall I disdain to suffer at this stake? Seeing my Redeemer did not refuse to suffer a most vile death on the cross for me. I say that not to, con- to convict us. If you're convicted, well, I guess that's the spirit. But to encourage you. If you're valuable to the kingdom, he has spilt blood for you. Your influence is important. Your stand, your family, fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, children. It's important. The enemy is not going to relent. It's not going to give in or take a day off. He doesn't either. That's why we need each other, why we need our small groups, why we must be in church. So we're going to close here and we're going to sing this this, this hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. And I've shared this story to this hymn before, and it's, it's about a missionary who's, who's, who's labored hard for uh, Christ and the gospel and some tribes, and he had one, uh, one person, one convert came to believe, and his name was Anuk Singh. And he came and believed, his wife believed, and his two sons believed. And as the story goes, that uh, after the missionary had returned home for a time, the king of the village had summoned him and asked him to renounce his faith. To which he replied, I've, I've already decided. I'm already committed. I'm going to follow Christ. To which he said, there's no turning back. This outraged uh, the chief, and so he brought his two children and said, you renounce Christ or we'll kill your children in front of you. To which he responded, right there, though no one joins me, still I'll follow. After killing his two sons in front of him, they brought his wife and said, Recant, or we too will kill your wife, which they took his wife's life in front of him as he spoke the words, the cross before me, the world behind me. The last thing they took was his own life. And the story goes, as the missionary returned, the chief sought to speak with this person who had brought this gospel Because he could not reckon in his own mind why someone would sacrifice his two sons, his wife, and his very life for a man who walked 2,000 years ago on this planet. And to that end, because there are those who said, "I've, I've already made the decision, I'm going to stand for Christ. I'm going to bring God's truth to this situation lovingly, mercifully, full of grace, I'm going to set aside my Lord, Savior, Jesus, as I do the work of apologetics, as I respond to the questions, as I speak to my family and friends and coworkers. Because there are those who will do that, there are others who come to know, who is this Jesus? What the world needs is just to see the the validity of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ lived out in our lives. God demands loyalty. Paul demonstrates it. He utilizes what Jesus has said. He is doing it. Let us not be those who bear with false things. Let us be those who speak truth to what is false. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. You've given us your word.
Your word is truth. Your word never changes. Uh, just as truth is unchanging, uh, unchangeable. We thank you for that. We can know you and have confidence in you. And I pray for each soul here this morning, Lord, as we, as we take our own thoughts and our own hearts, Lord, before you, and as we think about areas where maybe we have imbibed the culture where we need to speak truth, Lord, guide us. Maybe there's areas where we feel that we, we think we're inferior. Let us realize the armor that is upon us and the sword of the Spirit that's in our hand. Let us not be those who just simply go about and, and uh, in some type of legalistic way or anything like that, but to be full of grace and mercy, but to point people to Christ. We realize that we can't, we're not going to win every battle, Lord, but we also realize we're, we're going to lose every battle we don't fight. So let us be those who will stand in, in the way, in the gap, and proclaim your truth, not deviate or navigate from it. And even those moments of Scripture that might seem difficult or hard, let us have a faith that is growing and trusting. That, Lord, we would, we would not be those who bear with false things, but those who speak truth. Let us be those. And we pray, Lord, for the pastors again around America, around this globe, those who are preaching today. God, I pray that your church would be awakened, that there would be a seriousness to your word, the necessity Lord, would be understood. We need your word. So we thank you, Lord. Give us a heart like John Philpott. Give us a heart like Paul, Lord, just to be loyal and dedicated to you. And we pray this in the awesome name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, we're going to, uh, if there's, we're going to sing that hymn here in a moment. If there's um, questions about what it means to follow Christ, um, I'd love to help or address any questions that I can. If there's, if you like prayer, I'll be up here afterwards. Uh, after we sing this song, I'll have you stand, we'll sing this, but I'd like to extend the right hand of fellowship, and um, Caleb Hoppy has turned his, has gone through the class and turned his um, application quite a while back. I feel bad. We're just going to do that. Is that all right, brother? We can. Right hand of fellowship. And the foys, all right, Lewis and Olivia. So I'm going to ask you, after, after we sing this, um, this hymn, I'll have you be seated, and we're going to invite them forward and ask them, not now. Uh, we'll ask you a few questions, and then we'll have the right hand of fellowship. But before we do that, let's, uh, let's bring uh, our service to close. Let's lift our voices, and let's sing this hymn.